Uh, good morning, church. It's still morning. We've got 10 minutes left of morning. We won't be uh, too much longer. For those who are joining us online, uh, welcome. For those in the hall, it's, uh, it's a wonderful privilege any time that any of us actually gets uh, to, to preach the Word of God. And I want to just um, start by sharing that when we come to preach the Word, obviously we are uh, assigned various texts, or if it's a free choice, we pray and discern what it is that God wants to say. But we come to the text with this idea, this understanding of asking God, what is it that you want to say to us today? Because we believe that while all text is always relevant and there's any bit of scripture we could open up and it will be relevant and applicable to our lives, we do believe that there are moments that God ordains certain texts or certain messages that he's wanted to communicate a particular divine truth to us. And I hope that you have felt that as we've gone through this Acts series over the last two, three months, that there is this sort of divine um, moment that's been kind of um, growing as God has been exciting us and stirring us for what it is that he is wanting to do. So let's um, open in prayer and then we'll get stuck in. Almighty God, we thank you that there is something that you want to speak to us this morning, Lord. And I pray right now that you will just open our hearts, our minds, our ears to that word. Whatever you want to stir us with, whatever alignment or correction, whatever you want to encourage and exhort or rebuke us with, Lord. May we be open, willing, and ready to hear your Holy Spirit speak. I pray this in your mighty name. Amen. So it's been an amazing couple of months as we've been uh, wrestling through with uh, Acts chapter 8. And today I get to finish the series looking at chapter 12. And it's been amazing how in these five chapters, so much has been crammed in. Like, it actually covers about 15 years of church history. But verse after verse, story after story, we start to see just the expansion of God's church. We start to see the early church taking seriously the words of Jesus to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost ends of the earth. And Luke, the author of Acts, is this skilled author. One of the things that sometimes I think we fail to appreciate is that while all Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, there's something um, quite human about the way that the author kind of collects and navigates these stories together. And so you see that in the Gospels, the different Gospels, that each author brings their own flavor to the Gospel based on whether the audience they're writing to or their own personality. And Luke is this skilled writer. And so he keeps setting up these rhythms and these patterns, both in his gospel and now in the book of Acts, because he's wanting to communicate a bigger message. When we survey the whole of the book of Acts, we see that one of these messages, one of these subplots that Luke keeps communicating is actually the, of the importance and the significance of prayer. Prayer is mentioned in the book of Acts uh, over 30 times, and it's only actually beaten by the book of Psalms, which makes sense because Psalms is in itself a prayer book. And so every single story, every single situation, every single incident, Luke keeps wanting to bring the reader back to the importance and the relevance of prayer in that situation. 
Luke, uh, sorry, in Acts chapter 2, Luke gives us this beautiful summary of the rhythm of the early church. He says in verse 32, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. And then he goes on and he kind of expands what that kind of looks like. And he's keen to show that the foundation of the early church were these gathered moments of prayer. That everything that the early church went and did was soaked in prayer. There was the very heart of what it did. And we've seen this over the last couple of months as we've been exploring. When we looked at Philip going out to Samaria, ministering with signs and wonders, this was done through prayer. Peter and John, who were sent then by the apostles to go and lay hands and pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this was done through prayer. Philip being led to the Ethiopian eunuch and his response to the gospel was as a result of prayer. Ananias, knowing that he should go and minister to Saul and where to find Saul, was done as a result of his personal prayer. The raising of Dorcas, prayer, Cornelius getting saved, and Peter knowing not only how to minister to him, but actually the significance of this moment to the Gentiles, prayer. Every single major moment took place because of prayer. The early church was a praying church. The early church was a praying church. And prayer was a part of their day-to-day rhythm, both personally and corporately. It was the foundation of how they made decisions, of where they decided where to go or who to send or what to do. When there were times of difficulty, it was the first thing they did is they responded in prayer. And then when God acted, when miracles took place, when people were saved, when healings took place, their first response was to give thanks to God in prayer. So today as I wrap up the series and we explore this final story of Peter's miraculous escape from jail, I want to look at what are the implications for us today. For if we truly want to live out this bold, radical life, this bold, radical faith that we see in the book of Acts, and my hope is that as we've studied it, that's been some of the things that's been raising within us, that there's this desire to see miracles, to see the lost saved, to see healings taking place, to see nations open up, to see churches and communities being planted, that if we truly want that to take place, then we need to pray like the book of Acts. We need to pray at the early church because we cannot have one without the other. So turn with me to Acts chapter 12 and we'll get stuck right in. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Should be on the screen. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Like I said, Acts 12 takes place about 15 years after the day of Pentecost. And so the church has started to grow. It's moved out of Jerusalem and into the Jewish communities of Judea. It started to have some impact also into Samaria. So some of the, um, uh, not necessarily Gentiles, but those who were related, uh, uh, 
related to the Jews. And we even start to see this foretaste of it going to the Gentiles, it going to the Ethiopian eunuch, it going to people like Cornelius, uh, Peter's vision that actually this gospel was a gospel for all people. And the growing influence of the early church started to cause tension among the Jewish world. You have to remember that the Jews kind of saw back to their, um, to their past of exile. And the reason they were exiled was because they had departed from the faith. And so they saw this new church, they saw the early church, and they saw these people as heretics, as people who were blaspheming God. And there was this genuine fear, this genuine worry that if they were allowed to continue, that God would punish them once again. Uh, politically, politically, Judea laid, laid in a difficult situation. It was still a puppet state of Rome. Herod was only there because Rome wanted him there. And so Herod knew that he needed to maintain this kind of fragile peace. There couldn't be an uprising. There couldn't be a revolt. There couldn't be any disturbance. If he was to keep his political power, he needed to keep Rome happy, and he needed to keep the Jews happy. And so the early church became an easy scapegoat. They became a group that he could blame situations on. They became a group that he could target, and it would appease the Jews because the Jews felt that this was the right thing, but also showed to Rome that he was taking his leadership seriously. And so Herod makes a political response, and he arrests and he kills James. He didn't do it out of religious conviction. He didn't do it because he believed it was the right thing. He did it purely for politics. And when he started to see that this was appeasing the Jews, that it was starting to look good for Rome, he also thought, I'll go after the head of the church. I'll go after Peter as well. Verse 4, and when he had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So, people was kept, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Herod was probably well aware that Peter had actually escaped from prison once before. Back in Acts uh, chapter 5, we get to read this story. And so he wants to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And so we see that he's actually assigning uh, probably 16 soldiers to guard him. Normally it would have been just two. But he knew that while it would have been advantageous for him to kill Peter, if Peter was to escape, it would be politically disastrous towards him. And so the church responds in the only way that it knew how. Prayer. I love the simplicity of verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. One of the, the greatest struggles I have in my life is, is balancing faith with pragmatism. I'm a very pragmatic person. I kind of look at, you know, what are the, the sensible things, the responses that we need to do. And I started to kind of imagine if I was put in this situation, if this situation was happening today, how would I respond? So let's imagine that Dylan has gone to Hatter. He's partying extra hard. He's being extra awesome. And the police swoop him and they say, that's it. We've had enough, uh, Dylan. We need, to, we need to send you off to jail. 
And I start thinking, I get the phone call from, from Dylan and Robin, and they say, Dylan's in jail, what do we do? And the first thing that I realize that I probably do is I start to think, well, who do I know in the police? Well, I know that Hannah worked with someone whose husband was connected quite hard with the police, and so maybe I could contact them and they could help. Or then I start thinking, well, okay, what kind of lawyers or legal team would I need to help? Well, Hannah, she deals with aircraft that's not particularly useful in this moment of time, but, but maybe there's some sort of special kind of aircraft jail people who could help us out. Or maybe I start to think that, you know, you know, going out to reach to the diplomatic mission or, you know, the first thing in my mind is I'm starting to make a list of pragmatically what can I do to help Dylan. The early church, though, they simply fell on their knees in prayer. I think one of the greatest challenges is, I know for me, and I'm sure for you as well, is that when we face these moments, when we face these situations, do we respond first in prayer? Or do we start kind of making a list of what we need to do and then pray God to bless that? For the early church, this wasn't even a question. I wonder how much time in our lives is wasted because we act first and pray second rather than praying first and allow God to direct the actions that we should take. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. I love, you get this sense in the text that, that, that for Peter, remember, he's already been in this situation before. The fact that he's able to sleep on the night before his execution, that there's almost this peace, there's almost a confidence, there's almost this sense of kind of either God acts and I'm saved, or God doesn't deliver me, but I'm glorified and I'm with him. And there's something beautiful that's so, it's so gentle and it's so subtle. And again, you know, we think about Peter. Think about his life and his journey with Jesus. This wasn't how he always was. This isn't like, you know how there are some people who are just naturally calm? They're just not some people who, it, like, just life and anxiety just seems to wash over them and there's no problem. That actually wasn't Peter. I think Peter was only able to get to this place because he trusted on God, because he worked upon it, because of the time that he spent in prayer, the time that he spent sitting at the feet of Jesus, of allowing the Holy Spirit to work within him, to transform him. We too can be like Peter. We too, as we grow and are transformed into the likeness of Jesus, can get to the place that no matter the difficulty, no matter the challenge that we face, that there's a calm and a peace about how we conduct ourselves because we know that God always wins. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and the light shone in the cell, he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the, by the angel was real. Before he was seeing a vision. 
When he had passed the first and the second gate, they came to an iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and he went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord had sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from the Jews who, and, uh, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. If you think about it, this is crazy. Peter only, almost in hindsight, after the miracle has taken place, actually realizes what God has done. But what we see in this whole kind of story is that at each command, at each request that the angel makes, okay, so get up, get dressed, put on your cloak, follow me, walk past this guard, walk past that guard, go through the gate. Peter is simply obedient. He doesn't go, okay, angel, but that's fine, but what about the guard who's standing outside? Or what about the iron gate? There's a simple obedience to Peter. And the angel leads him step by step for the process of his deliverance, step by step for the process of his miracle. And it's only then when he's actually kind of out and he looks back and he sees all the different steps that he realizes that he has been delivered. And I think there's something about how God chooses to work in our lives, that he doesn't give us the 12 steps that it's going to take to get us to the place. But he lays one choice, one decision before us, and he asks, will you be obedient with this? And when we step into that, then he lays the next thing. And he says, will you be obedient with this? And then we step into that. And it's only as we come to the end of the journey and we look back in hindsight, do we realize that God has led us out of that place step by step by step? God responds to the earnest prayers of the church. Verse 12, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Peter then kind of realizes that he's still in danger, and so he needs to go somewhere that was safe, and he... he he would have known that John Mark's mother's house, it's a mouthful, John Mark's mother's house, was a safe place in the city. It was a place that he would have visited many times before, that the believers would have gathered together to sit under the teaching of the apostles. They would have gathered together to pray. They would have gathered together for the breaking of bread, for fellowship, whatever it may be. And so Peter goes, well, that's a safe place, and I, I know that there'll probably be people there, so I'm going to go there. And as he goes to the house, he sees, or he uh, realizes there's a good number of people who have gathered to pray. You see, Luke here, again, he's doing something very specific. He's trying to show us that throughout the time that uh, Peter was making his miraculous escape, the church was praying. You see, prayer is the fuel that changes the story. It was the praying church that changed the outcome of Peter's situation. Whatever the situation, whatever the story that we find ourselves in. As Rob led the meeting, and he talked about in worship that for some of us, we're in this moment where, where there's this mountain ahead of us. Whether it's a, a, a mountain um, connected with health or finances or relationships or anxiety or whatever it may be. The only way that the story changes, the only way that the mountain crumbles is through prayer. If we want to change 
what's on the horizon. We have to do it through prayer. And remember, prayer is not our own strength. It's not our own power. It's not our own ability. But it's opening ourselves up and saying, God, align me into your will. Guide me in this moment. Show me the steps of obedience that you want me to take. Again and again in the book of Acts, when people pray, the story changes. When people pray, the story changes. What's so beautiful about prayer is not only is it this deep, intimate relationship of a child and their father. Not only is it us kind of unburdening our hearts and our souls and and pouring it out to God, but there's also this posturing and this openness and this creating of space to listen to his answer and response. One of the things that we've seen again and again throughout 2021 as a church is how God has been challenging us as an eldership, as a, as a leadership team, and as a wider church, how are we posturing ourselves before God? Are we opening ourselves to a place so that we can listen to what he has to say, so we can follow the directions of his spirit? Everything that took place today with Well of Life International and Well of Life Arabic came because of prayer. Everything that took place today came because of a posturing and an opening ourselves up to go and say, God, what is it that you're wanting to do in this city, in this nation? How can I position or how can we position ourselves into alignment with what your will is? And he led us step by step. So what can we learn then from the book of Acts? Well, the early church seems to practice three sort of different types of prayer. The first one is corporate prayer. The second one is small group prayer. And the third will be personal prayer. There are times that we see in the book of Acts where all the believers of a city would gather together and come and wait upon God. We read this in Acts 2 when it talks about them going together to the temple courts to pray. They knew that there was something significant about the body gathering together. There's something about the whole community coming in agreement, coming in a posture of of not only petitioning God, but also saying, God, together we want to listen to where you want to uh, take us. We want to listen for your will. We want to listen for your voice. We see them gathering together in small groups to pray, such as what was taking place in John Mark's mother's home. They were a small group gathering. They were a collection of 10 or 20 or 30 believers meeting in a home, giving over that space to pray for the needs of the church, to pray for the needs of the leadership, to pray for the needs that each other had, trusting that God would answer. And finally, we see them devoting time to personal prayer. I love, as I got to preach a couple weeks ago about the story of Ananias and Saul. And the whole context of Ananias going and reaching out and ministering to Saul was that Ananias was just spending time in personal, devotional prayer. There was no agenda. There was no objective. He was just seeking the face of God. And in that place, God broke in and guided him to go 
and minister to Saul. Each of these times in prayer helped fuel the growth of the early church. And not one is more important than the other. Not one kind of takes precedent. All three of these kinds of prayer are needed. And here at Well of Life, we try to replicate that rhythm. Once a month in our Ignite prayer meetings, it's the city coming together, gathering as a community to pray for the needs of the world, to lift up uh, maybe a particular country or nation that we're ministering into, to petition God to create space for him to speak. There is something significant about us as a complete community coming together, the same with Unite prayer that's coming up on a Monday morning. At the heart of our small groups, whether connect or men's, women's, young adults, us as elders gather together weekly, there is a sense of praying, not just for the needs of the church, but praying for our own personal needs. In a group of 10 or 12, we could be a bit more intimate, a bit more vulnerable. We can share what we're going through in our lives. We can, we can come in, in, in agreement. And then also in our own personal devotional life, Praying for the meetings, praying for apostolic trips, praying uh, for personal needs, whatever it may be, but seeking to set aside time for prayer. When we make time to pray, the story changes, and we position ourselves ready to be used by God in the building of his kingdom. I think the most important thing there is that in these times of prayer, that they're not just... Um, reading off a list of demands, but actually we open ourselves to be led by the Holy Spirit in this. Dr. Helen Rosevera, missionary to Congo, told this amazing story. She said a, a mother at the mission, uh, sorry, a mother at our mission station died after giving birth to a premature baby. We tried to improvise an incubator to keep the infant alive, but the only hot water bottle we had was beyond repair. So we asked the children to pray for the baby and her sister. One of the girls responded, Dear God, please send a hot water bottle today, for tomorrow it will be too late. The baby will die. And dear Lord, send a doll for the sister so she won't feel so lonely. That afternoon, a large package arrived from England. The children watched eagerly as we opened it. Much to our surprise, under some clothing was a hot water bottle. Immediately, the girl who prayed so earnestly started to dig deeper, exclaiming, if God had sent that, he would have also sent a doll. And she was right. The Heavenly Father knew in advance of that child's sincere request. And five months earlier, he had led a ladies' group to include both his particular articles. Some of you may recognize that story. It's in the discipleship guide. If you've not signed up to, to be a part of the discipleship program, make sure you do. Because one of the things that we focus a whole week on is how do we have spirit-filled living? And how do we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us, particularly in our spiritual warfare, but also in our prayer? It, in Ephesians 6, Paul says that we are to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayers and supplication. We need to pray at all times in the Spirit. You see, this is exactly what happened back in England. This ladies' group, as they, sent, uh, as they set time aside to pray for Dr. Helen, they asked God, what is it that you're wanting to show us? What is it that we need to hear? And that simple instruction, a 
a hot water bottle, a doll. Five months ahead of time, with no sense of planning, no sense of pragmatism, no sense of, you know, will this make sense to send? They were simply obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And they became then the answer to someone else's prayer. I think there are two ways that we can engage in spirit-led prayer. One of them is the beautiful gift of tongues that God has given us. Tongues allows us to bypass the mind and for our spirit to connect and commune directly with God. There are times that we don't have words to be able to pray. There are times that we don't know the specifics of the situation. There are times where we don't kind of understand what is going on, but we feel this burden to pray, this burden to intercede. And the gift of tongues is this beautiful gift that God gives us to help us in those moments. I remember there was a situation years ago when I was living in New York, and I was really struggling with, with anxiety at the time. And I went into a church one day, uh, I was right in Manhattan, an open church, and I just started praying. I started praying in English, but I felt that words were failing me, and then I kind of moved into praying in tongues, and for five, six minutes, I was just pouring my heart out, my emotion out, with no real understanding of what it was that I was praying, but with a sincerity of heart. And then I suddenly felt this kind of... Um, the sense that God had heard my prayer. And to stop praying and to kind of just dwell in silence. And from that moment on, actually a huge amount of things shifted for me. And the gift of tongues in that moment, it, it allowed my spirit to intercede on my behalf with God, not knowing with me not knowing, but knowing that my prayer had been answered, knowing that what needed to be battled in that moment had taken place. The second then is about opening ourselves to, to, to the guidance of the Holy Spirit when he drops a name or a place or a situation onto our heart and our mind. Sometimes when we gather together at Ignite, and maybe we're praying for the church in India, and as we're kind of breaking into groups, and suddenly you'll get the sense of, I really want to pray into this. Or I feel a stirring that we need to be praying specifically for that. That's the Holy Spirit speaking and guiding you in your prayer. And these are just two very simple ways. But if we allow them to become regular parts of our prayer life, of our rhythm, then it's amazing, actually, what gets achieved. Luke goes on to include one more, if not slightly comical, part of the story. I'll finish with this. He tells the story of that Peter goes to the home and, and knocks on the door. And Rhoda, this young um, female servant, probably a slave, recognizes Peter's voice and recognizes that he has been delivered from the jail. And so goes, even without opening the door, and tells the rest of the people praying. But the rest of the people praying don't believe her. And I think Luke is including this story for a specific reason. As a, as, a, as a woman and as a slave, she would have been the very bottom of the household. Yet she was the only one who believed that, that God had actually answered what it was that they were praying. And I think Luke 
is just wanting to kind of prod us a little bit and say, you know, you can pray with all sincerity and all earnestness. But when I do answer, is there actually a place of faith in your heart that can respond? I wonder when they finally came down and opened the door, how many men in the community or how many of the older women felt a little foolish and embarrassed at that moment as they looked at this young slave girl and realized she had more faith. She had postured herself in a way with more expectancy that God would answer our prayers than us. I think the reason why it's told in a, in a comical fashion is that it's a, it's a gentle rebuke. It's not a, you know, a, a moment of deep conviction and wailing and repentance, but there's a, there's a heart test there. Are we trusting, are we believing that when we earnestly seek God in prayer, how he will respond? If we want to see the activities of the early church manifest today, then we need to pray like the early church today.